millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, the lockdown in Lee Shoffley and Kildare due to the outbreak of COVID-19 has put the spotlight on the meat processing industry. As I'm sure many of you are aware, four meat factories were at the centre of the outbreaks and that gave rise to many questions about how, at this stage of the pandemic, the sector could still be so vulnerable to attack from the virus. One issue in that respect is the working conditions for those in the factories. And in that vein, it has emerged that many workers in the meat processing business, and not necessarily in any of the ones that were affected, but in the general business, may be operating under a system known as bogus self-employment. This is a highly controversial area, and the body politic has recognised that and held hearings on it before an Oireachtas committee last year. There is an argument that the prevalence of this kind of employment is a factor in what some see as growing inequality in society. So what exactly is bogus self-employment and what does it mean for us today? To discuss this, I'm joined by a man who's something of an expert in the area and he's also one half of the highly regarded Echo Chamber podcast and that is Martin McMahon. Martin, you're very welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, Mick? How are you? I'm good, thanks. Martin, I suppose we kick off. It's an area, as I said, that you're very familiar with. I'm a bit familiar with it myself. But for those who may have heard the term but they don't know what exactly it means. What is bogus self-employment? Bogus self-employment in the classic sense is somebody who is paid off the books. Cash in hand, no PRSI, no tax. And if somebody comes along investigating, they've been instructed to say, I'm self-employed. That's the classic sense of bogus self-employment. Over the years, that has changed somewhat. And we have what I call gigification, which is state-organized bogus self-employment on a massive level where it is, to some degree, legitimized by the state. Yeah, and that is the crucial thing, that the form of employment, as you describe it, uh, it's not necessarily, and I'm sure employers in practically all areas would argue, definitely not illegal, but there's a whole grey area there. Now, one element to it, Martin, I would have thought, is that the big problem in terms of particularly those working in the low paid sector is that any of the benefits that would accrue to employees in normal circumstances are just not available. To them. That's it. No holiday pay, no sick pay, um, no maternity leave. And um, basically you, you come in, you are you could be working by the piece um, you could be paid by the hour and you you are a worker drone with absolutely no entitlements, no rights, no way to fight your corner. Um, as for it being uh, unlawful, yeah, it is actually unlawful in that there is a penalty. Um, you can be fined up to €13,000 and you can even face imprisonment for deliberately classifying somebody as self-employed. 
Exactly. And I think you have personal experience of this in terms of you you, you, you represented some people. The uh, disputes go towards a body related to the social welfare department and some people might argue whether or not the um, policing and implementation of the law there is what one might describe as robust. Um, it's it's fair to say that we do have on the books enough laws and statutes and instruments to deal effectively with bogus self-employment. The problem is nobody within the state wants to deal with bogus self-employment, particularly not when they have organized it themselves. If you consider we were coming out of a bad recession and they needed, we'll say, construction, you need to boost construction. The easy way for revenue and social welfare to do it is simply to turn the blind eye to bogus self-employment. And then you will you will get an upsurge in construction. But it's all it's all unlawful and it's all um, taking money from the taxpayer and the exchequer. Yeah, to that extent, PRSI is the big thing, because if I'm, let's say, for instance, just take a construction sector, the meat processing industry or wherever. I mean, it happens in the media as well. Actually, the experience of myself over 20 years ago. But in that scenario, if I'm classified as self-employed, even though to all intents, I am an employee. What happens if the company goes bust and I find myself on the dole? Am I then treated as somebody who was self-employed and I haven't paid any PRSI? That's exactly it. And that's exactly what happens to you. And that's usually when most people discover the limitations of being called. And we're using the word self-employed. You can It can be a contractor, a subby. There are loads of different phrases to describe self-employed. But legally, there are only two positions. One is either contract of service, which is an employee, or contract for service, which is self-employment. And it doesn't really matter what you want to be or what you consider yourself to be. If you don't fit the legal criteria for self-employed, then you are not self-employed, no matter how much you want to be. Okay, and it should also be said, to be fair, that the system may suit some people. For example, if I'm a well-paid techie employee, and I'd have to admit at this stage, there's probably unlikely to be anyone more ill-suited to being uh, very good on the techie side of things. But just let's say I'm working for one of the big companies and I'm employed on that self-employed basis on a very high salary and I want to uh, have that contract thing where I'm effectively self-employed, then, you know, if that suits me, if it suits the employer, and as you say, okay, it may be a grey area at the very least within the law, but if it's not hurting anyone to that extent and it continues, well and good. The real problems arise in the low-paid area, isn't it? Well, in the low-paid area, and Revenue will tell you this, they have what they call Schedule D workers. And Schedule D workers would be your delivery riders, your bricklayers on on building sites, lower-paid jobs. Now, they're not called Schedule D because these guys are are well-paid executives of, of Bicycle Limited CEO. They're called Schedule D because they are lower than employed. It's a, it's lower than being an employee. Even though they're they're saying you are self-employed, you're not self-employed. You are literally an employee without rights. That's what you have become. Whether on the other end, on the high scale, the IT, and there is huge evidence that it is far more rampant at the higher end than it is at the lower end, 
um, the no harm done. Well, what I would say to that is it's a massive loss to the exchequer. That hole has to be filled by your taxes. So does it hurt you? Absolutely, it hurts you. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a fair point. I suppose the distinction, as you say, and, and at the high end, it would affect the exchequer far more because there'd be far more tax lost. And absolutely, that's the case. In terms of exploitation, though, I think it's, it's fair to say that it's very much something that appears at the low paid end that effectively people who want to be employees, they're not allowed to be because they're told, no, no, we're not going to treat you like an employee. We're going to treat you scheduled or self-employed or whatever. That's exactly it. Now, that said, in the last, I'd say in the last 24 months, I've had about four people from the tech sector who I would have considered well-paid uh, people who have had their their employment status changed to employee because they no longer wanted to be considered self-employed. They got the jobs. Um, the jobs were advertised as self-employed jobs. But over the years, they have become employees and they've effectively used internal systems within big IT companies to have their, their employment status changed to employee. The problem is at the lower end of the scale, that doesn't exist. There is nobody to talk to. Um, if you feel you're misclassified, the only route you have available to you is to go to the scope section of the Department of Social Welfare and ask for an insurability of employment decision. And that guarantees you will be fired from your job. It guarantees you will be blacklisted. That's what happens. Yeah, and I think I've come across a case like that in the construction industry myself. I reported there a few years ago. Martin, take us back. Um, there's a famous case where this all started and arose, and we're talking about the, the Denny's case, as in Denny's sausages. Well, back in the... Uh, and this, this applies also to bogus self-employment. These two things ran in tandem. Back in the, the early 90s, for some reason, and I think it was to do with construction... The revenue commissioners and social welfare saw that they were losing revenue somewhere. Now, I'll say first that the collection of PRSI or the, the payment of PRSI is entirely down to the Department of Social Welfare. It's, it's not a revenue issue. They simply act as agents for the department, as collection agents for the department. So the power on whether you were employee or self-employed lies exclusively with the Department of Social Welfare. And they carried out a scope assessment of a worker. When you say a scope assessment, what, what are you referring to there? An insurability of employment decision. The scope section is an office of the Department of Social Welfare, and it's, it's populated by very clever people who know employment law and are on top of every new development within employment law. And they apply the precedents and the tests handed down by the court to your particular circumstances, and they make a decision. Are you contract of service or contract for? And that's a legally binding decision. Could I put it this way? They ultimately decide, if you have an issue over, listen, I should be an employee, they're treating me like self-employed, you make an appeal to this scope body, and they come, they, they go through the law, etc., and they come back and say, well, yes, it's okay the way the employer is treating you self-employed or you're right, you should be an employee. They, they, they will decide on that status, what your status should be. 
That's it. And it's a it's a legally binding position. And I would say that Scope is a very, very professional, um, honorable outfit. And it is very, very professional. And their decisions, the, the original Denny case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, that started as a Scope decision. So Scope decisions have survived all the way to the Supreme Court. Okay, what was the Denny's case? In the Denny case, there was a demonstrator and she moved between different supermarkets and shops. You, you, you know, the, the ladies who stand there with the pan, they cook a bit of sausage or whatever it yeah. is, and you taste it. And she was told that she was self-employed. The job actually was advertised as a self-employed job. And the revenue commissioners had made a deal with De, uh, Denny and Sons that all demonstrators that worked for Denny were to be classified as self-employed. Now, that wasn't unusual back then. Um, the application of whether you're an employee or self-employed was pretty much in the hands of revenue. And they decided between individual employers, maybe out to a, an industry, maybe a sector. And it was kind of on an ad hoc basis, whatever they wanted. Um, it was always guided by the job situation in your country. If they wanted to create um, more employment, they just turned a blind eye to bogus self-employment. If they wanted to get more revenue in and the employment situation looked good, they just tightened up on the rules a little. But all of that is beyond their remit. That is, they're not allowed to do it. This is cast in stone, whether you were an employee or not. And the idea that they can just change it to suit the economy, they can't, but they do. And what happened to this woman? Yes. She got a decision from the scope to section that she was um, an employee and not self-employed. And the employer then gets to appeal this to an other office of the Department of Social Welfare called the Social Welfare Appeals Office. And the Social Welfare Appeals Office was brand spanking new back in 1992, 93, when this happened. And when the employer appealed the scope decision to the Social Welfare Appeals Office, the appeals office upheld that scope decision. And they said, yes, the scope decision was correct. So the employer then had to go on to the High Court and ultimately on to the Supreme Court. But the decision held from the scope section all the way through, and the Denny case set a raft of precedents, which are now established as the basis of the law where this area is concerned. The problem is that as, as well as doing that, which was very admirable of everybody involved, they were running a tandem case within the, within the Social Welfare Appeals Office that had come from the courier section. Um, couriers were all working on the lump, no cash in hand, no PRSI, um, and they were claiming while they were at it as well. So revenue went to courier companies and said, you owe us money. You're not um, complying with your statutory obligations. And their statutory obligations were to declare anybody who had been paid over three grand. And that had arisen from the PRSI strikes back in the 70s. Um, where a lot of people complained that the, the PAYE payer was shouldering the burden of the expense. So to try and catch everybody, revenue introduced this rule where if an employer pays three grand, no matter what they classify the person as, they must declare it to revenue. But courier companies didn't do this. 
they literally paid cash in hand and and eventually revenue came looking for them and said, you owe us money. And the courier companies lobbied the revenue commissioners for the next six years until the revenue commissioners finally agreed to classify all couriers as self-employed, not because that's what they were. And the phrase they used was in the interests of uniformity. In other words, they just wanted an easy life. So we'll call everybody self-employed. And all self-employed transgressions since that day arise from that decision. Okay, would it be fair to say, Martin, that in most, if not all of these cases, the attitude of the employer is, I don't want people on the books as an employee because it's going to cost me too much money. It's more profitable for me to have somebody classified self-employed and therefore that traditional employer-employee relationship does not exist and I can wash my hands of people, sick pay, holiday pay, etc. Yeah, when they crunched the figures in, in the revenue commissioners in the UK, Her Majesty's Customs and Revenue crunched the figures and they have come up with a figure of it's about 30% saving on labour costs if you call your employees self-employed. And that's substantial to any business. That's a substantial uh, saving. And in Ireland, traditionally, employers have called PRSI an unfair tax on employers. Now, whether you believe that or not is up to yourself, but Ireland has the second lowest cost of employing somebody only to Malta. So, you know, employers have to pay their share. It's part of the social contract. We pay PRSI. That's our part of the social contract. Employers are meant to pay employers PRSI. That's their part of the social contract, but they don't want to. And largely, the state has facilitated them not to. And that's all unlawful, all of it, every bit of it, unlawful. And in the current environment, one side effect of that would be, um, if I'm classified as self-employed, particularly if I'm among the growing migrant labour force, which tends to, an, an awful lot of them tend to be in the low paid sector, and uh, I feel I have symptoms, I have a choice. Do I stay at home? lose my day's pay and I've heard of one or two instances where staying at home basically you're told you may well lose whatever employment you had as well but leave that as it is just say do I lose my day's pay or do I take a chance do I go into work and ensure that there is food on the table because otherwise I simply won't get paid now I know the government say in that instance that they have the the pop the pandemic unemployment payment but if you take people in vulnerable situations like migrants are they going to trust in that? Are they going to um, be happy that they're going to get it soon enough that that they're not basically doing without the basics? So, I mean, there's that added dimension to it during this pandemic, isn't there? Yeah. It, it, look, that problem always existed. And I know myself, I, I think I told you before, I broke fingers and that. And I still had to go to work. I had no choice. And... If you think, yes, the pup is there, but these guys are on, they're not on exorbitant wages. They are living hand to mouth generally. So if you say to them, um, okay, your wages were 500, but here's a pup payment of 350, they're destitute at that. Like that's, that's, you know, there is no fat on the meat. They are, they won't be able to pay their bills. They won't be able to pay their rent. They won't be able to keep their cars, whatever it is they have. 
the pandemic payment sounds great if you have a little reserve or you know you can you can make money another way but it's not any use if you're already on the breadline and it's a reduction in payment what do you do it's great to say i can isolate but where am i to isolate in a tent because i can't pay my rent so you know pub is great it's a great tide over but for people who are on the breadline the difference between 500 quid a week and and 350 quid a week is the roof over your head so what do you do what do you do? Do you chew down a few paracetamol and say, bloody hell, I better take the chance. Else me and the missus and the kids are out on the road. You take the chance. That's what you do. Yeah, and that's what happens. And there's obviously a knock-on effect there. A couple of other elements to it, Martin. But I'm going to put the, the opposite case in a minute, but a couple of other elements to it. In terms of people, the natural progression that people have, they, they, they go out into the workplace, perhaps they settle down or whatever their circumstances, one way or the other, one obvious thing, and it's a whole separate issue, but it, it's a what you might call a, a signifier of people putting down roots, and that is the likes of trying to get a mortgage or anything like that. Yeah. If, I'm, if I'm employed, if I'm fully employed uh, as an employee, and you're saying the same business and you're self-employed, as I understand it, I'll get very likely, if I qualify otherwise, I'll get the nod for a mortgage, but you, the self-employed person, won't. Yeah, that's very true. And and particularly since they have tightened up on the rules, people who are self-employed have hoops to jump through to get a mortgage. And in essence, you don't get a mortgage. I think I was very lucky uh, back in 1998. I was self-employed as a motorcycle courier. And I think it was probably the one of the last people to qualify for a mortgage as a self-employed person. Um, I'd never be able to do it again today. I'd never, ever be able to get a mortgage, um, even though, you know, it looked on paper like I was getting enough. I'd never get one today, ever. They have tightened up so much that self-employment, um, no, you're, you're at a loss. You are completely at a loss. And it's not just housing. It's it, when they say precarious, your entire life is precarious. Um, you're renting, um, you could be out sick, you won't get sick pay. Everything is precarious about your life and your money is never yours. That's that's an element people forget. Your money is never yours when you're self-employed. There is always money to be paid back to, to fix something or to get yourself back on the road. You never actually have any money in your pocket. You're always broke. That's it. If you're a Schedule D worker, you are always broke. Yeah, no, the scenario that you paint, and I think it's a very accurate one, would seem to be that, let's call it bogus self-employment, there is a law against it. It would certainly appear, to a large extent, that a blind eye is turned towards it from the officials and, and, and from official Ireland, if you want to use that term, or whatever. So that gives rise to the question, why is it continued? Why is it tolerated continually? by the authorities, presumably, um, in some form of direction, either explicitly or implicitly, from the, the, the body politic or, or successive governments. Why do they allow this to continue? Well, it, uh, last year I, I gave evidence, and there is an Oireachtas Committee on Bogus Self-Employment. It exists, and uh, it hasn't sat since the, the, the government shut down or the pandemic shut down the government. But I gave evidence late last year at that, and I explained all of this. Um, they want to control 
the imperative for a political person is to be able to say, we've reduced the numbers on the unemployment register. That's their imperative. How they do it, they simply don't care. Um, as long as they can say, that's the headline figure, we're down to 5% or we're down to 4%. So they will put them into any employment to get rid of them, even bogus self-employment. And what has happened over the last 20 years is that particularly bogus self-employment, people who go to intro offices, whatever, they're told, go get this job. The state doesn't care it's bogus self-employment. Once you've worked there, you're never going to appear on the unemployment register because you're self-employed. You can't be unemployed self-employed. Right. Is there also an element that um, employers' bodies, and particularly in some sectors and construction in particular, I think up to about a third, it's estimated, of workers in the construction industry could fall into this category. But is it the case that the body politic is put under pressure from employers told that we simply under the current economic model, unless you agree to this, unless we go along with it, unless a blind eye is turned, we can't continue um, working and making what they would regard as an ordinary profit in that environment. That's 100% true, 100% true. And um, you know, I've done a lot of work on this and I've tracked back these meetings where there has been meetings between officials and employer representative groups. And that's 100% what happened. But there is also an element of companies who are too big to be treated like they are tax fraud or, or PRSI fraudsters. They are. They were caught rent-handed by the revenue commissioners. But rather than, than expose these people as tax frauders, white-collar white social welfare fraudsters, they have done deals with them instead. And the deals invariably leave the worker as self-employed and let the employer off their statutory obligations. You are certainly in the employment sense creating something of an underclass there. And um, I think I'm correct, Martin, that a huge amount in this area is work that's done by migrant labour, which by their very nature are more vulnerable. They're often not represented. They're in a strange country. They don't want to create any waves and that sort of thing. So it's easier for this to continue in those kind of circumstances. Yeah, there, there is a kind of rule of thumb. If you want to find out where uh, bogus self-employment is most rampant, go and look where the migrant workers are working. 20 years ago, it wasn't migrant workers. 20 years ago, it was a class issue. It was people from the inner city. It was people from Finglas, from Clondalkin. They were the people you'd find in those jobs. Now you're finding migrants in those jobs with the people from the inner city, from Clondalkin, from Tala, from Finglas. They're all... so. Is it, is it a, a race issue? I'd say more of a class issue, but it has also developed into a race issue, very much so. Yeah, I don't know what to go along with a race issue, Martin. I mean, exploitation, as it is, people can be exploited irrespective of, of, of the colour of their skin, but I think it would certainly be arguable that it's a migrant issue in terms of, yeah. um, of them being a very vulnerable category. It is. It's where people are most vulnerable, where they're... they're they're not so sure of their rights, where they may have been unemployed and any job is better than no job, or you have the social welfare breathing down your neck, threatening to take money off you. So you will go and you will do the intro and you will go to that job that says you're a, 
and this is true, this one is actually true, you're a self-employed apprentice on a construction site. They actually had one of those two years ago. A self-employed apprentice. A self-employed apprentice. I, I kid you not, Mick. I kid you not. Yeah, there's another darker side to it, and this is something I think that you direct involvement in a couple of years ago, and that was there was a, a number of uh, workers on a construction site in Dublin protested. They wanted their situation regularised. It went through the system, and we, we don't need to go into the detail because I think it does get kind of complicated. But one outcome of it is that those workers, and I spoke to some of them myself, come back two or three years, they were effectively blacklisted as far as they were concerned and there's no suggestion that the company that they were in dispute with was responsible for this it's more a question very often that a word goes around and various people you know what have you it's not down to one company but they were to a large extent blacklisted and unable to continue applying their trade in the construction industry that's that is true and and that particular the, and each case has to be taken on an individual basis that's very very important those workers, and it really ties into the meat plant, um, they had worked on a site, we'll say a dozen guys working on a site, laborers, bricklayers, and nobody was paying them. And the, the principal contractor said, here, look, sign here to two of these guys, sign here. You are now uh, directors of, of company and we'll put the money into your account and you pay everybody else. Very quickly, the guys caught on that this was uh, this wasn't legal in the first place. It was completely illegal to do this. So they all appealed their decisions to or their employment status to scope. Even the guys who had who had signed to set up the company. And when you think of agency work, that's basically what these guys were doing in a very rudimentary way. Scope ruled that they were all employees, including the guys who signed the contract and paid out the wages to other people. They all employees. And in that sense, that was an extremely important case. It was one that never saw the light of day publicly because all of these hearings are conducted in private. But that was overturned in the Social Welfare Appeals Office. Won't even get into it, Mick. But what they said is, yes, some of these guys are employees, but they're not that principal contractor's employees. And why that's important is it shows that all of these guys who had been designated as self-employed under the EORCT system, even the best case scenario, half of them were not self-employed. So the ERCT system, which has many thousands of workers in this system. That's the system that there's regulation for particular industries, isn't it? Well, it's I would call it a PAYE system for self-employed people is what I right. call it. Right. And it operates in construction, in meat processing and in forestry. They're the three big industries it, it operates in. And they simply proved that when you leave it to an employer, and it is only the employer who gets to decide what the employee is, the employee has no input whatsoever, that up to half of them are misclassified. Now, if half the people on the ERCT are misclassified and the evidence is there and the, both the Revenue and Department of Social Welfare know the evidence is there to say that that is the case, you are talking losses to the exchequer and you can go two, three, four billion. It's huge money. It's huge money. 
It is. And then, as in other areas we've seen over the years, people get a reputation for standing up for their rights, effectively. When that's not liked in uh, sectors, particularly among employers, they find themselves blacklisted and they can't work. Martin, clock is slightly against us, but one thing, that you, you mentioned the Oireachtas hearings. There was a report that hasn't seen the light of day yet. I don't know if you've had sight of it, but what would your hopes be in terms of the body politic addressing this? Well, I started on this journey with Jim Mitchell when he was the chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. That's going back 21, 22 years ago. And Jim Mitchell, I I got Jim at the tail end of his chairmanship of the PAC. And I said to Jim, you are looking at construction. Why aren't you looking at other industries? And I gave him examples. And he started to question unions, the revenue commissioners, social welfare. He started to ask all these questions, written questions. And then there was a change of government and Jim was out of that job. And Jim died not long afterwards, which is, and I, I got on very well with Jim Mitchell. Since that, they don't want to know. They simply don't want to know. Um, the Oireachtas Committee on Bogus Self-Employment was set up last year following huge pressure from me. I, I made them set it up and they can think they set it up themselves, but no, if I hadn't pushed, it wouldn't be there. So they sat through seven, eight sessions. And I was the second last person in the door. And I just went in and I blew the whistle on the whole thing. I gave them lock, stock and two smoking barrels, how it's wrong, where it's wrong and how to fix it. And um, after me, they called in the top civil servants from the Department of Social Welfare. And in fairness to the likes of Alice Mary Higgins, um, to Jed Nash, to John Brady from Sinn Féin, um, they grilled these people to within an inch of their lives. And the truth came out within this Oireachtas committee. And the report was due to be signed off on. Two days before the report was due to be signed off on, the government called the election. So it's sitting there, ready to be signed off on, ready to be published. What we need is a new committee to take ownership of the last committee's work, have a meeting, then publish the report. And then we will have an idea of where the state is failing and not just failing those in Schedule D jobs, but failing the other end, the top end, and also failing the taxpayer. And I keep coming back to it, the taxpayer, the taxpayer, the taxpayer. It's the taxpayer who's taken the big hit on this. If you're losing $1 billion a year, which is the conservative estimate from ICTU, and this is going on since 1992, 1993, then that's 20-odd billion that should be in your pension fund. And it should be sitting there in your pension fund. Instead of saying you have to raise your pension to 69, there should be enough money to say we're lowering pensions to 60. But it's gone. It's stolen. And it was stolen by employers who have defrauded the state. Yeah, I suppose that's one way of looking at it. And you could also say with the connivance of the state, um, what will be interesting, as you say, is the contents of that report. But I have no yeah. doubt if uh, if it falls short... One Martin McMahon will be on their case pretty pronto and fair play to you, Martin, for sticking with it because I know it's something that you have been to the fore in and it is definitely something I think that is contributing in one sense to what a lot of people feel is a growing inequality in society. Martin, thanks very much for joining us today. Greatly appreciate it. Hopefully we'll have you back sometime and we'll tune into the 
echo chamber to hear uh, your ongoing musings on the affairs of the day. Thanks for joining us today, Martin. Thank you, Mick. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. You can get the podcast on all the usual platforms. I'd love to know what you think of it too. You can contact me on uh, mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at at mickclip. See you soon, folks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.